You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, uh, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which, has, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, for you know, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I know, uh, like myself, our hearts are, are heavy over what's happening in our nation. And... Uh, Many of us, including myself, have asked the question, why? God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see who you are as one way to settle the anxiety that many of us are feeling right now over, over what's happening in our nation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Corey Ten Boone, who lived from 1892 to 1983, uh, who's known for hiding uh, Jews in her home during Nazi Germany uh, and survived Nazi Germany, gave some really good advice that would do us well to listen to, especially in our day and age. She said this, if you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. If you look at God, you will be at rest. And I, I'm not one to protest anything, but I got to tell you, uh, if there's anything to be protested against or, or to, to boycott, let's just say boycott, uh, if there's anything to boycott, uh, it would be the media. 
on both sides, on both sides. Fox News and CNN, we should just stop watching it all. It just feeds into, into this fear that uh, has also affected the church and, and our nation. And so, uh, I don't know. So I, I was thinking about the strength of expository preaching, and that's what we practice here, or I practice, um, just working through Scripture, working through books of the Bible, working through, through what comes next. When I decided, when I got over my 30-second fear of Romans chapter 9, uh, that was before George Floyd died. I couldn't think of a more relevant passage uh, to deal with some of the stuff that we're dealing with today than, than Romans chapter 9. Uh, I, my heart, and this is what I need, and so often, like I said to you, often I am preaching to my own heart when I'm preaching. And the need that I have to settle the anxiety that I experience is to see God. And that's what Romans chapter 9 does for us. It just opens up the curtain and says, look at who God is. And, and, and looking at who God is, we're reminded of who we are, right? So I don't know what to believe when I turn on. In fact, I hardly watch the news. So I, I, I like Facebook sometimes. Um, recently, not so much. Uh, I know. Here's what I know, okay? I know we have a problem in our nation. And it's a race problem. We're human beings. We are born and we bear the image of the living God. We are one race. And for whatever the reason, we have a tendency to look at our neighbor and think to ourselves, I'm better than the person next to me. I'm more valuable than the person next to me. And some people, they make that, that decision based on the color of another person's skin. For other people, it may be the social status of that person. I'm convinced more than the, I'm convinced that the murder of George Floyd is uh, symptomatic of a much larger problem that plagues not just our nation but our world. I'm convinced that more than ever uh, that, that we live in a nation where all lives do not matter. They should matter, but they don't matter. We have a multi-billion-dollar sex trade industry that plagues our nation. We live in a nation where all lives don't matter. Last year, over 600,000 unborn children were murdered. We live in a nation where all lives do not matter. And we live in a nation that, is, that still has wounds from the past that stretch 400 years or, or more related to slavery. But I'm convinced more than ever that we live in a nation uh, where all lives do not matter, and it didn't begin in 1619 where, with the arrival of the first group of African slaves in Jamestown, Virginia. It began way back with Cain when he killed Abel. As I said in my e-letter that went out on Thursday, I said this, I'm convinced more than ever that we live in a, in a nation where all lives do not matter. That should really bother those of us who follow Jesus. 
When we hear from those in our community who are tired and appalled over another senseless death of a person of color, we protest, we ought to protest with them that yes, black lives matter. All lives matter, of course, but black lives matter too. The church must stand up and agree that in a world where all lives do not matter, the lives of black men and women and children matter. We're the church, and of all places, we ought to be pro, we're, we're, we're called to be pro-life of all lives. When I read my Bible, when I read in my Bible, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and have compassion on whom I have compassion. Do you know what I hear? I hear that there's a God who's bigger than all this stuff that's happening in our nation and in our world. And he is changing our world one life at a time. That's what I hear. I hear that God uh, is changing people like me, that that is the only hope, the only hope for the problems that plague our nation and our world. When I read, so then it depends not on uh, human will or strength, but on God who has mercy, I'm reminded that the only hope for our nation and and the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. That the gospel... Not politics, not policies, not presidents, not politicians. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and that's what changes lives. I said last week, you know, if you ask my wife, uh, you know, about some of my theological positions, you know, when we first met, versus uh, compared to now. She'll say that my commitment to the scriptures has remained the same, that I believe the Bible to be the 100% the word of God without error, but some of my, my, my theological posturing has changed. Well, why? Because God is doing this work in my heart. He's molding me and he's shaping me just like he's doing with you. And, and, and there are two things that I just want to that I get from, from, from Romans chapter 9 that I think is helpful, at least for my own heart, as I process what's going on in our nation. And I'll give you my two points right up from the beginning, like what, what, what it is that I learned from Romans chapter 9, and then I'll unpack it you know, with our time together. And the first is this, is that uh, the gospel is not God's plan B. And then... Secondly, the gospel is God's perfect plan A. So I just showed you my cards. Um, The gospel is not God's plan B. When I read Romans chapter 9, what I hear the Apostle Paul saying is not, well, God had a plan, and Adam and Eve messed that plan up, so then he had to go to plan B. That is not the gospel. It is not plan B. It has always been his plan A. That's the point of Romans chapter 9. And, and to understand the context of Romans 9, like Paul's day and age, was, it was a mess. Like It was not an easy place to, to live in. I mean, it was, politically it was a mess. There was slavery. There was rampant immorality. There were all kinds of things that were going on in Paul's day, including injustice that, uh, that, that was just run, running rampant through the streets. And, and so he was living with a lot of the same stuff, just different dress that we're living with today. And that's why Romans chapter 9 is in our Bibles. 
The gospel is not God's plan B. It was always his plan A. Listen, God cannot be sovereign and, be at, the, and, and at the same time have a plan B. How many of you believe that God is sovereign? You know what that means, right? He's in control. Because if he were not, he couldn't be God. By definition, if God is God, he has to be reigning and ruling and in control of all things. He's got to be perfect in every way. And for him to be perfect in every way, there is no plan B. There can't be a plan B. There's always a plan A. If God is sovereign, all-knowing, and all-powerful, then the only plan he is capable of having is a fail-proof plan A, and that's Romans chapter 9. Anticipating the legitimate questions that, that his readers, that Paul's readers would have, that we would have, uh, he, he, he asks the question for us in verse 14, uh, so what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And the answer is no. No, there's no injustice on God's part. Uh, and For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Which for some, that's not a very satisfactory answer. But Paul's saying that's the answer. That God, God, if there's any being in all of the universe that is completely free to make any choice that he wants to make, it is a sovereign, in-control, governing God. And uh, the problem with, with us is that our freedom enables us to go only as far as our nature will allow. And every time I turn on CNN and Fox News and, my, and I go on my Facebook feed, you know what I'm reminded of? We're a mess. I'm a mess. There are, uh, so, so <laughs> I just want to say that right from the beginning. There's no plan and plan B. There's always plan, there's only plan A. And so how do we respond? Like to, to God's freedom to choose, like we talked about last week. So if you missed last week, after sometime this week, listen to last week's message. Uh, eventually the manuscript will be up online and you'll be able to read it, but uh, you'll, you'll need to do that. I was kind of laying, the, for the last two weeks, laying the foundation and the groundwork for the, re, for the passage that we're dealing with today. But there are two other ways Christians have tried to make sense of God's sovereignty and the, the sinfulness of mankind and like what happened in the garden. Uh, if, if salvation is not God's plan B to Adam and Eve's sin, then what is it? That's the question I think probably some of you are asking. When I, like, I told you last week about some of the things that I struggled with when I came to uh, Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9. Um, I, I, I wrestled with that. Like, so if, God, if salvation is God's plan A, then, then what, what about the fall? What about sin? What about evil in the world? And so there are two ways, uh, two primary ways that Christians have tried to make sense and theologians have tried to make sense of this. One, uh, some argue that God decreed that uh, you know, the sin of Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind for the purpose of calling and redeeming certain people for salvation. So but let me explain what that is. Uh, in other words, uh, according to uh, this view, God elected certain people to salvation and others to damnation. You ever hear that? Like, 
the theological phrase for that is double predestination. Don't, this is not a theology class, but I think it's helpful to know some of these things. Um, so God decreed the sin of Adam and Eve and, and the fall of mankind for the purpose of calling and redeeming certain people. The problem I have with that is God doesn't, the Bible's very clear, God does not ordain evil, like, or he doesn't create evil. He's not the author of evil, right? Everybody agree with that? He does not create evil. He, he does not lie. He, 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 he just doesn't. Uh, and so that's the problem I have with that view. As one theologian said, God does not force people to sin and then punish them for that sin. So there's another response to that. Others claim that God's sovereignty and plan of salvation was made in view of mankind's sin and need for a savior. Um, so God uh, did not plan from eternity to make some people evil and other people redeemable. Instead, what he did is from eternity past, God planned, calls, and redeems out of fallen humanity people who are utterly and completely dead in their sins and trespasses, and he makes them spiritually alive in Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 Let's read this together, okay? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, so what were we before Jesus? We talked about this last week, right? What were we before Jesus? Dead. And how dead is dead? dead, right? And, and so that's the point. Uh, if you're dead, you're dead. Uh, I do not believe that God decreed or created evil. Like he, I, He's not the author of evil. If God is sovereign over all things, now here's, where we, here's the rub, you ready? And, and I, we need to get to this before, before I can offer anything that's helpful for you for what's going on you know, in our nation. But for God to be sovereign over all things, then he must also be sovereign over sin. Uh, you've heard me say God is bigger than our jacked up past, right? He's bigger than our sin. That's, there's hope there. You see this all through the Bible. Like the, the people God uh, uses or has used in in, in, in the past and in the church, uh, as we read our Bibles, were people that were not stellar. Like they, they've got some pretty significant things uh, in their past, a pretty jaded past. They, and God was able to, he was bigger than that. Uh, you think about Paul. I mean, Paul was responsible for the murder of, of some Christians, including Stephen. And God did the work in his life and turned his life around. So I do not believe that God decreed or created evil, but he is sovereign over sin and he is sovereign over evil. We see this with the cross of Jesus. Like if you read Acts chapter 2, Paul, Peter said, when he's giving a sermon in Acts chapter 2, he said, look, you crucified Jesus. You, you are responsible for crucifying Jesus, but God predetermined the cross long before you were even thought of you know, by your parents. So God is sovereign over sin, he's sovereign over evil, he's able to turn it around. As I read through scripture, it seems to me that, through, that, that, that although God did not create evil, he certainly ordained it. 
that's different than creating it. Here, uh, just follow my reasoning. Um, According to Psalm 139, verse 4, God knows our thoughts. He discerns our thoughts from afar, is what the psalmist says. He's just from all of eternity. He's able to, he's discerning our thoughts. He knows our thoughts. And yet he still created Lucifer and he still created Adam and Eve. Knowing what Lucifer would do and what Adam and Eve would do. That's different than saying he created the evil uh, that Lucifer was responsible for and the evil that Adam and Eve were responsible for. God could have prevented the evil from happening, right? So some of you, that's where your brains are going right now. If God is sovereign, he could have prevented this mess. Would anybody ask that question before? Have you ever thought that? Like one person who's honest in here. I thought that, like, if God is sovereign and, can, and in control, why didn't he stop it at the beginning? Why did he create Lucifer? Why did he create Adam and Eve? He could have prevented evil from happening, but he chose not to do so as part of, listen, as part of his plan A. This is hard stuff. But I really believe that if you're, if you're going to be able to make sense of what's going on in our nation the first step to making sense of it is to focus your eyes and your thoughts and your heart on the God of all creation. That he's bigger than all this. And he's doing something, he's doing something behind the scenes that you can't see all the details and you can know that what he's doing is good and he's turning this around in a way that will, bring, that will be glorifying to him and it will also serve for our good. So if God is sovereign over all things, then he must be sovereign over sin. And he created Adam and Eve, and he created Lucifer, knowing exactly what they would do. And he did it all, anyway, as part of his plan A. God's purpose in not preventing evil and sin was to demonstrate, according to Paul in chapter 9, to demonstrate the magnitude of his grace and mercy by redeeming the guilty who instead, listen, who instead deserved his wrath. Um, that's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> it's, it's here in chapter 9. Here, here's the other thing that we learn, and this gets, the news gets better, but all of us deserve his wrath, um, and we even acknowledge this, right? We even acknowledge this in, in the songs that we sing, right? Ama- <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a what? Wretch like me. I once was lost, but... Now I'm, was, blind, but now I see. Yeah. Um, remember I talked a little bit about Calvinism last week and Arminianism? You know who wrote that? Him? He was a Calvinist. <laughs> That's not super important. I'm just letting you know. It, it's, it's part of your, you're singing the song. Uh, I mean, our nation's singing it. Like now, they don't even know why they're singing it. And they're singing it. Um, all who are saved by his grace from his wrath, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Romans chapter 9, are vessels of mercy instead of remaining what they were, born, what they were from the moment of, of birth. Like, like, who am I from the Jesus? Who do I need to make me alive? Jesus. 
Am I able to do anything on my own to make my deadness alive? No. I need a miracle. I need, I need God to do something in here to, to awaken in me a love for him and, and a desire for him. And, and as for the rest of mankind, according to chapter 9 here, God has passed and continues to pass over them by leaving such people to their spiritual deadness who will one day experience his wrath, not because of the evil God placed in them, but the evil that existed in them since birth. Do you see the difference? And I, I can hear a pin drop right now. Um, and the re- we're dead. We're born, born spiritually dead. And if God is sovereign, and it's only in him that we have any hope of this dead soul being made alive in him, he's got to do the work. He's got to do the work. So this is my second point, and this is where the news gets a little better. The gospel is God's perfect plan A. And so Paul says this, and then we'll deal with some some really hard passages in the Bible. Paul says, uh, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. So would he make sense? How do you make sense of that? Have you ever asked the question, how, how is it, if God is not the creator, if he didn't create evil, how is it that he hardens people like Pharaoh so they will never repent? Have you ever, like that's chapter 9. This is not Keith, you know, imposing his theology on chapter 9. These, this, is, this, is the, this is stuff that Paul wrote. And he, understand, he understood when he wrote these verses through the inspiration or by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he understood what questions would be asked as a result. If you look at chapter, or verse 19, he, his response is, so you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And he's going to answer that question for us. In verses 17 through 18 we are reminded of how and why the gospel has the power to change lives. Here's what the Bible states in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Daniel's like one of my favorite Old Testament books. Uh, I I love Daniel. He's just a really cool dude. And I I love seeing what God is able to do with kings, like Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you read Daniel? Yeah, most of you. uh, Almost all of you. If you haven't, read it. That will encourage your heart. Um, and I, I mean that legitimately. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar responded to God in this way. He changed after he was humbled by God. He, says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and, not, and knowledge to those who have understanding. Who is it that sets up kings? God. You know, uh, whoever is our next president, whether it's our current president or, or somebody else, Understand that God put that person there. And, uh, and why? Because I want God to be in control, and so I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Uh, it was God who, who granted Pharaoh life. It was God who allowed Pharaoh to rise to power. It was God who put Pharaoh on the throne in Egypt. God put Pharaoh in a position of power over not just Egypt, but also the, sla- the Hebrew slaves. God did that. And why did he do it? Paul answers the question. 
that I might show my power in you, speaking of Pharaoh, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That every time people look at Pharaoh and what happened with the, with the Hebrew people, they will respond by saying, God was bigger than Pharaoh. And he's bigger than my problems. He's bigger than my circumstances. Yet, what did Pharaoh do? He continued to worship the creature, namely himself, rather than the creator. That's Romans chapter 1, by the way. So Paul's like bringing us all the way. He, he's, as he wrote chapter 9, he is reminding us of what he wrote in chapter 1. And uh, what did he write in chapter 1? That as people worship the creator or the creature rather than the creator, God says to them, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove the restraints and I'm going to hand you over to the desires of your spiritually dead heart. And that's what it means for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. You know how he hardened Pharaoh's heart? He said, okay, that's what you want. I'm removing the restraints so that you will be as evil and as sinful as you're capable of being. And even while you see me move, and not just through one plague, not just through two plagues, but through ten plagues, you've seen my hand move, you will continue to resist me. Why? Because I've removed the restraints. And, and you want to know why our world is not as jacked up as it could be? Because God is restraining the evil in our world. And every once in a while, we're reminded that it could be worse. And this week, for me, I'm reminded, you know what? It could be worse. Um, and, and every once in a while in history, we, we see God remove the restraints off of a, from an individual. Uh, we've seen it with Hitler. How many, of you, how many of Hitlers have you seen in your lifetime? You can probably count them on one hand, right? Why? Because God is restraining evil. Not everybody is as evil as Hitler. Not everybody is as sinful as Hitler. But you want to know what? We're capable of being that way as a, a race. And, um, and I know there was a documentary uh, that, that came on Netflix about Jeffrey Epstein. I would say God removed the restraints. Like, this guy, not many people are as evil as Jeffrey Epstein. Right? Would anybody agree with that? Right? Um, but we're capable. We're capable. And so God gave Pharaoh over to the evil that already existed in his heart by removing the restraints. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, not by making him more wicked, but by removing the restraints that originally, originally kept him from being as wicked as he possibly could have been and eventually did become. God holds the restraints of our wicked hearts. It is also because of the restraining power of God that things are not worse today than, they, than it could be. And when it comes to the wickedness of Pharaoh or the evil of God, to, you know, or, or, or the will of God to choose some over others, the only answer Paul gives us is in verses 19 through 23. He says, you'll say to me then, why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? And how does he answer it? Not in the most satisfactory way, right? Who are you? Who do you think you are? As, if you were to paraphrase that, who do you think you are, human? 
created being creature. Who do you think you are, creature? Uh, what you know? What will or what will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for for uh, dishonorable use? What what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? And then he goes on to say, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of, of mercy. Like he doesn't really give us a satisfactory answer, but he gives us an answer. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And our response is, well, I'm just a creature, and I need salvation. And Paul said, that's, that's the answer. God is doing something in our world. And the story of redemption is one of God pursuing people who are running from him. If you don't believe me, just read your Bible. Where was Adam and Eve after they sinned? Anybody want to take a guess at it? Stab at it? Where were they? Hiding. And what did God do? He found them, right? Where was Abram or Abraham before he met God? He was a moon worshiper in Ur. And who approached Abram or Abraham? God did. Uh, and I could go on and on. Like, where was Saul, later to name Paul, where, where was he before he met God? On the Damascus Road looking to throw other Christians in jail and possibly have others murdered. God is in the business of pursuing people who want nothing to do with him. And if you, if you honestly you know, search your heart, uh, who was it that found you? It was God. I have no other way to explain it. How, how was it? I heard the gospel over and over and over again. I grew up Catholic, so I heard it in, in, you know, in my Catholic catechism. It was there. Uh, and and uh, you know, I, then my dad became a, a follower, a, a believer in Jesus after he had his hand cut off. And, and so I was hearing it through him. Um, and then I was hearing it from my best friend's mom. I couldn't get away from it, and I still didn't want anything to do with it. And then I was hit by a car, and I was in the hospital bed, and Daryl Dare came and shared the gospel with me. And yet again, you know, I, he shared the gospel with me. My dad and my best friend's mom were both sitting on the opposite sides of my bed praying for my soul, and I still didn't want anything to do with Jesus until I got home on July 18th, and it, may, it hit me like a flood, and, and, and in the middle of my living room, it made sense to me. How do you explain that? God. God. And, and so Paul says, so the, so the answer is not, you know, is, is, you know, is God not righteous then? Is it that, of course he's righteous. And, and the, the, a legitimate question is not, well, how does he find fault then? The, the, the legitimate question is, why am I not in hell now? Why, why, is, you know, why is he not exercised his wrath on me now? now? Like, why? That's the legitimate question. And Paul says, but here's what he's doing. And you see it in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people... I will call my people. What is he saying there? They were not my people. Now they are my people. 
I will call them my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called, what? Sons of the living God, or children of the living God. What is Paul saying here? He's, for those of his readers who, who had some Hebrew background, they would have known exactly what he was saying. Paul is quoting some verses from the, prophetic, the, the book of Hosea. It's a prophetic book, a little book. And the story is uh, about Hosea, a prophet, who was told by God, I want you to go marry a prostitute or a promiscuous woman. I imagine that conversation Hosea had with his mom and dad. Like, here, here, I mean, like, Gomer was known. Like, everybody knew about Gomer. And, and Hosea, my, if I were Hosea, my first question would be, what did I, have, what did I eat the night before? Like, like, what's going on with my... And then, and then um, my next question would be, are you sure? Because I don't want this woman. And so God tells Hosea, Go marry, and literally, ESV says, go marry a woman of whoredom. The NIV tones it down a little bit. This is a promiscuous woman. But whatever she was, she didn't have a stellar reputation. She was known by, by the community. And she was known by Hosea. And, and, and so what does Hosea do? He goes and he marries her. Uh, he, 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 they have a wedding. He married Gomer, but as, and this was no surprise. In fact, I can hear Hosea's mother and father, if they were alive, saying, I told you so, because what did she do? She was not faithful. She was not faithful to her husband. In fact, she was so unfaithful, according to Hosea, is that she wound up becoming a slave to her own sin to the point where she became a slave and was indentured as a slave and in the slave market. And I think anybody who has experienced the unfaithfulness on that level, if it were me, I would say, well, that's where you belong. I reached out to you. You didn't want anything to do with me. I gave you, I, you know, I, I tried to provide a nice life for you, but you weren't satisfied with that. And then God spoke to Hosea, and he said, okay, look, I'm doing this, I'm working out this metaphor, this illustration for all of my people, and unfortunately, Hosea, you're the, you're the story. So now what I want you to do is I want you to go to the slave market, and I want you to purchase back your wife, who has been unfaithful to you, and clothe her in white, never to be sold into slavery again. To which I would have asked, are you sure? <laughs> And I may have said no, <laughs> right? And so what did, what did uh, Hosea do? He went and he purchased her. He redeemed her. Go again, God said. Love a woman who was loved by another man and is an adulteress. And so he did that. And you know, you, you know what he said to her? He said... You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, 
so will I also be to you. And Paul's saying, that's what God is doing in our nation. That's what he's doing in the world. He is going to a, he, he's pursuing a woman of whoredom, and he is, he, he's pursuing her with love, and he is, he's going to the slave market of sin where they can't help themselves, and he's, go, he's gone to them through the person and work of his son Jesus, and he, he's purchasing them one life at a time and making them his, never to be sold into slavery again. That's the point. And I could picture, I could picture Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane where he's, he's sweating great drops of blood because he knows exactly what he's about to endure. And he said, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass before me. And I could almost hear the Father say to his son, go again and love a woman who has loved another by a man and who was an adulteress and purchase her. Make her your bride and clothe her in white, never to be sold in slavery again. And you want to know who, who Hosea is talking about or who God is talking about or who's Paul talking about? He's talking about us. We are the woman of whoredom. We are the promiscuous woman. And he has clothed us in white and he has made us his. And guess what? It had nothing to do with the color of your skin and everything to do with the redemptive love of God. And every person who is clothed under, under the righteousness of Jesus is made up of different ethnicities and people groups and languages. You know that? Like when you get to heaven, don't think for a second that this is what heaven's going to look like. There will probably be more Asians than anybody else. And then there will be some, some Africans, and then there will be some Latinos, and then there, and a very little minority somewhere in the corner, somewhere in heaven, is going to be a bunch of some white people. And it won't matter. It won't matter because we collectively will be the bride of Jesus. And you know why I know that? Because of what we're told in Revelation chapter 5, as well as what we were told in chapter 9 where all of heaven celebrates the, 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 the groom of all of redemption, who is Jesus Christ. All of heaven celebrates him. And, and when it, the question was asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? What scroll? The deed of all of heaven. Who is worthy to open the deed of, of, of heaven and all of creation? John starts to weep because there's this pause, this awkward pause. Why does he weep? Because if nobody's able to open the scroll, then there's only weeping. There's only hell. And who reaches out to take the scroll? Jesus. Jesus. And all of heaven erupts, erupts in song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth for how long? Forever. Covered by the blood of Jesus. And what binds us together in the church is, is not our nationality, not our ethnicity, but the fact that we belong to Jesus. We all wear the same color, red, the blood of Jesus. 
We all belong to the same tribe now. The tribe of Judah. The one that Jesus belongs to. I said this uh, to my friend uh, JB, who's, JB, raise your hand. <laughs> um, I said we had breakfast, and, and uh, both of our marriages are interracial marriages. And uh, I said to him, I said, you know what? I really believe in heaven. Our marriages are going to, our present marriages, it's what heaven looks like right now. And uh, next week, JV is going he's going to be up here with me, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that we're experiencing as a nation and what the Bible has to say about it. But the reality is, is that we're covered under the blood of Jesus. And the only hope for this nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. If you want ra racial reconciliation, it starts with the gospel. When I, say G when I see JV, I don't see a black man. I see my brother. And, uh, and we, like we were sitting at the table, and JB says, man, I love you. I'm like, yeah, I love you too. You know, we, we've, we're just good friends. And the re what binds us together is Jesus. It's Jesus. And Paul started his, epi his epistle to the Romans, and I end with this. The hope of the nations is simply this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, right, and also to the Greek all people groups. That's the hope for our world. Not the media. God, not the media. <laughs> not politicians. Not policies. Jesus. Amen? And if you're here and you don't know who Jesus is, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The validation of everything I said rests in this, that there is an empty tomb. Jesus is risen from the grave and he's coming again to judge the nations. And I can't wait for that to happen. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, for the gospel. Thank you that you are a God who pursues sinners who are running from you. Spiritually dead sinners, you are pursuing them like you pursued me and, and, and everyone in this room. You're pursuing them and that their only hope is in Jesus, that salvation is found in no one else but the name of Jesus, and that the way to be justified and to be forgiven is faith alone and Christ alone, period. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.